Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. book nerds it's another week another episode of the bookcase i am one of your hosts and my name is kate gibson and i'm the second host <laughs> in more ways than one i'm her <laughs> father charlie gibson i have a quiz for all of you who may be listening hold up your hands wherever you are in the car well in the car don't <laughs> let go don't, of the don't wheel. hold up your hands but, if you're in the car if you're holding your baby don't, don't do that either yeah, well, well you've got a free <laughs> hand then anyway hold up your hand if you've ever heard of Ellen Craft and William Craft. Do you know who they are? I hear silence out there. Uh, <laughs> William and Ellen Craft are a fascinating story who are described, their story described in wonderful detail in a book by the name of Master, Slave, Husband, Wife. The author is Ilion Wu. This book has been out for some time. It is about to come out in paperback. And it was, I think, deservedly so on many, many of the top 10 books of 2023 when it came out. And as I say, about to be in paperback and very, very much worth your time. Why, Kate? Actually, I I love the way this book came to us, even though it came to us a little late. We were sort of out in the field. Actually, we're out on the East Coast doing GMA. And we dropped in on one of our favorite booksellers, Roxanne Cody, who also has her own podcast, which is terrific. And she said it was one of the most interesting conversations she'd had last year was about this book with Ilion Wu. And so we, I, I think I bought it at her store that day. I think I bought it at RJ Julia that day. The Crafts are a story of slavery that I had not heard anything about. I felt that I had read a lot of books on slavery, but then I read this book, a nonfiction book, which reads almost like an action novel because it is in some ways a great escape because Ellen is the daughter of her master and mother. And so she is able to pass and dresses up as a white male. And her husband, William, passes as her slave. And that is how they make their escape. This was not done under the cover. Well, it was somewhat done under the cover of darkness, but it was done right in front of everybody. Yes. She tried to pass as white. Well, she did pass as white. She did pass as white. He was riding in the slave car of the trains as she rode in the main cars. And they had several very close scrapes as they went north. And she had to disguise the fact that she had never been able to read. She had never been taught to read. So she put her arm in a sling. That was the excuse for her being unable to sign for the tickets that they got on railroads, et cetera, above ground railroads. And secondly, it gave her a story in that she was going north to get medical care and taking her slave, William, with her. And it worked. Surprisingly, it worked. And they became a symbol for escape from slavery. 
I was about to say, and yet their story doesn't end there. It's more complicated than that because this is happening at a time where the country is being ripped apart because the country is trying to decide what to do with the evil institution of slavery. And the Fugitive Act of 1850 is how the North placates the South. And so after they escape and become symbols... And I think this is a very modern theme in our culture still to this day. They become giant symbols of emancipation and it costs them. You know, the the people that they escaped from hear of their symbolic journey and it starts to cost them. And so their story never ends. Well, and because of the Fugitive Slave Act, there was in effect a bounty on their head. If they were sent back south, and it was perfectly legal because of that act to send them back south, you would get a reward for doing so. And their master sent out bounty hunters to try to bring them back. And people rallied around them. But there were pro-slavery people in Philadelphia where they went, to Boston where they went, in Canada where they went. They eventually had to go to England to be comfortable. And they weren't entirely even comfortable then. No, it's a harrowing story. And her research is impeccable. And it, as I say, the story is, is worth reading, I think, uh, right now. And so my father is right. It is well-deserved that it is on so many top 10 lists. And Ilyan Wu was a great conversation. So here it is, our conversation with Ilyan Wu. Ilyan Wu, it is a pleasure, real pleasure to have you in the bookcase. This is a wonderful book. And now you debut in paperback. We wish you luck with that. The story of Ellen and William Craft, when did it capture your imagination and why? I first came across the Crafts narrative as a reader. So the Crafts wrote a wonderful narrative in 1860, and it tells their story. And this was assigned to me when I was in graduate school. And I remember being in that library and turning these pages and entering a world unlike any I'd entered before, and really just being mesmerized from the get-go by the story and by the storytelling voice. I feel like as we learn about history when we're growing up, I know the story of Frederick Douglass backwards and forwards. I know the story of Harriet Tubman. I'd heard of William Wells Brown, but I'd never heard of Ellen and William and Kraft. Why do you think in your mind that this is not a story that every American knows? I actually had the same question myself when I first came upon this narrative in in graduate school because I'd read so many different narratives and this one actually wasn't even in print at the time. And certainly the story has been remembered by their descendants above all who have really done an amazing job preserving the history and sharing it. The question as to why is very complicated, but I think it's entwined very much with what stories we as a nation have chosen to remember, have chosen to honor. And there's so many things about this particular story that makes it very complicated and in some ways hard to admit to as part of our American history, which is kind of funny because I also think that this is really an American story about American heroes. So I'm doing everything that I can to make their story, help make their story better known. We were talking about this before you got up on the line was William Wells Brown quote where he says, were I to tell you the evils of slavery to represent to you the slave in his lowest degradation, I should wish to take you one at a time and whisper to you, slavery can never be represented. And I read an article about you where you said you didn't want to lose sight of that. So I'm interested 
what does the quote, slavery can never be represented mean to you? And how did you bring that to the crafting of the craft story? This is a quotation that I actually had pinned to my wall as a reminder. And I think it's just that, the fact that what we're talking about in terms of what people endured is unrepresentable. The kinds of violence, the kinds of uh, trauma, the kinds of survival, you can't represent them. So the question is, how do you do it? And William Wells Brown kind of modeled that because I love him personally. But for me, when we go back to that original quote that comes from him about how slavery cannot be represented, that to me you know, shows here's a person who is formerly enslaved, who's self-emancipated, who knows that nobody can see what he's seen before. And he states that, and yet he tries because it's so important. It was so important then, and I think it's so important now. When you started writing this book, it was really because you yourself wanted to find out what happened to the crafts. Did you know when you started this journey that there was enough material out there to give them a complete arc? Or were you just like, no, I just need to satisfy my curiosity? Well, it's funny because I, the moment I really committed and decided to write the story is when I was sort of hit by an avalanche of archival material or to okay. switch to another metaphor. I mean, I really, I felt like actually just as you described it, I thought, I want to know what happened. I want to know more about Ellen's mother. I want to know, like, was William ever reunited with his own mother? What happened to his siblings? It's actually on the day at the moment where I actually saw both William and Ellen Craft as children in the archives. I mean, as teenagers, evidences of their, their being given away or mortgaged that I just kind of sat down on the floor of that archive and I just thought, all right, this is it. I, I got to do this. How do I do this justice? She travels disguised as a white man, and he Mm -hmm. travels as her slave. That's a difficult thing to pull off, especially if you're a woman. Although, as you write, she was, uh, as the daughter of the slave master, she was very white in appearance. But it's still an amazing thing to pull off. Amazing also that she did not know how to read, which would put them at a tremendous disadvantage, it seems to me, as they try to make this journey. But which of them, in your mind, was the driving force? You actually read the craft's narrative. It's written in the first person from William's first person perspective. If you look at the original narrative, it's his name that's written down there. And so when you read their story through his voice, when you read other people's accounts of them, the focus is on him. And I think that was very much deliberate because Ellen was, I mean, it was really a shocking thing to be wearing pants, you know, at this time and for a woman to be taking the stage. And so in many ways, as soon as they arrived in the North, they kind of had to justify this. They were walking this very fine line because people were like, oh, we want to know about Ellen Craft. We want to see her. We want to know the story. But then there was judgment too, because there it was like, I mean, it's just a moment's turn and they're looking at her like somebody who is really too transgressive and breaking the social order, not only as it exists in the South, but all over the country. So they kind of have to create, Ellen has to create another public persona. But what I discovered in the course of my research, and as Ellen Craft's own words make clear, she was no shrinking violet. She was a very dynamic, in-charge lady. So I think it was a complicated dynamic between the two of them. It seems like he's the one wearing the pants, but actually (laughs) on the journey and metaphorically, I think that she's the one. 
I feel like in some ways this would have been a really easy book to turn into a goopy love story. (laughs) But really, at one point in the book, you say that they were willing to separate from one another to remain free, that the first and foremost was to get free. And so I'm interested in what your sense of their relationship with each other was like. So I think this story depends on the love that they shared with one another, which is actually their own powerful inheritance. You know, these people who are legally the property of others, Mm -hmm. who are given away, this is something they own. They own their love and they received it from their parents. And it carries on no matter what anybody tries to say to stop them. So I think the love is definitely real. I also think that it's not a happily ever after fairy tale story. And you can have a love, you can have a marriage that has lots of, that looks a lot of different ways. And the fact is that they stay together to the end of their days. But I think the cause of slavery and getting other people out of bondage, including others that they loved, their family members, that was so important to them that they were willing to die for it and they were willing to lose each other for it. They were selfless in that way. So they were willing to relinquish their love, to relinquish their lives in order to fight for this cause. You well document in the book that there were very frightening moments on the trip to go north to escape slavery. But one of the other things that surprised me was the moving finish line that they faced. They thought, gee, if I get to Philadelphia, it's a free city, I'll be okay there. And yet, People were grabbing slaves and sending them back south in Philadelphia, so they weren't safe there. So they then went to Boston. We'll be safe there. No, they weren't. The finish line was always moving on them. And I'm curious if that surprised them. I think that's very true. The finish line does keep changing. But I think as dangerous and as risky as those movements were, they actually kind of created those deferrals. Let me explain. So when they get to Philadelphia, they could have gone incognito. They could have gone straight to Canada and that was their original plan. But they're the ones who choose to tell their story, to share their story on the road. They're putting a marker on their back. They're taking this tremendous risk in sharing their experiences. So that's one incredibly difficult decision that they made that puts them in greater danger. There's a later point when they're in Boston, they could also leave. So there's so many points at which they escalate the danger by becoming really um, spokespeople for enslaved people and self-emancipated people. So it's something, it's not like they invite the finish line to keep moving, but they push it off because they know there's more to do. And consistent with that, when people offered to buy their freedom, to pay off their owners, in effect, in the South. They said, no. I think William said, I, I wouldn't even accept it if, if, if they were willing to accept two cents mm-hmm. for our freedom. That's right. They were very resistant to that idea, an idea that had been, well, Frederick Douglass's freedom was purchased. Why do you think they were so adamant about that? They became these media darlings, these celebrities on the abolitionist circus, because the people who enslaved them looked at this not as just as a means to recapture them into their own servitude, but as a statement about the Fugitive Slave Act, which was in effect a statement about the future of slavery in this country. So they knew that they were symbols of something much, much bigger, and they were ready to become that. There's one point where you know, Boston is bubbling hot like a pot, uh, as it's described, and William and Frederick Douglass are together on a street corner 
and the stagecoach comes careening by. They're so close. It really feels like they could grab William at this point. And luckily, the stagecoach passes. But Douglas is like, look, you know, if you need to go, if you need to escape somewhere else, like, you know, you can avoid all this. And William says, no, I've come running too far. And I'm standing not just for myself, but for other people. And he says, basically, I'm willing to die. And Frederick Douglass says, and this, I believe, is a direct quote, if you die, our people will live. So that is a magnitude of what they embraced at every stage of their journey. My father talked to me about the fact that he had read you say somewhere about how literature and music are related. Once you had sort of put this story together and you knew you were done with your research, how did you decide to break it down and present it? It was a long process, I have to say. And actually, music is sort of what helped me think through it. And you're right. I have Overture in the beginning and a coda at the end because I knew that there was a specific finale that I wanted. And Ellen Craft really had to have the last line. But we need to what we need to know what comes after. So then I thought, well, what happens in music? Well, you could have like kind of a coda. I actually originally started the story with the scene of heartbreak at the Macon County Courthouse where William is sold, because to me that was such a powerful part of their original narrative. They describe it very visually, and it's a moment that I wanted to stand out in the minds and the hearts of readers as it stood out for me. The problem is that I started with that moment without giving any context for their journey. And then I went into this giant sort of scholarly, I don't know what you want to call it, morass, where I just like was like, and you want to know this? And you don't want to do, you know, and like everything. I mean, basically what was in the footnotes was on the page. And my editor, bless her heart, was like, no, this is not going to work. You have to start with the journey. You know, you have to get us into the journey. That's the exciting part. You can put the other stuff later, but I was basically mistaking background for foreground. So I started all over. I started with the journey as they're moving forward in time. And I had to figure out how to layer in the past. That was probably the biggest challenge to figure out how to have a narrative that's running in the present, but with the past also palpable. Mm. I've seen you quoted as saying you had done so much research that when you started to write, you had created a scholarly tomb. And that, <laughs> and, But you, you quote one of my heroes. I was a history major, bad one, when I was in college. But you quote Eric Foner, who is a hero to me, oh. who told you, don't let the details overwhelm the story. Interesting that a nonfiction writer has to balance the emotion he or she wants to bring to a story with the details that they have spent so much time researching. So when you heard that advice, when your editor said, no, you can't start the way you're starting, what was your reaction to that and how did you approach it? Well, I cried a lot. Yeah, I wept. You mean once I was able to scrape myself off the floor you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that is really where I thought, well, how do other people do it? Science fiction especially is really good and fantasy at like putting you right in that world and you just have to hit the ground running and you have to catch up and learn the language and the place through the things that you see. So that's kind of what I decided that I was going to try to do. So I, I studied screenplays, screenwriting. That's another place where, like, where every single moment you have on film is not wasted. And you're getting information through, you know, you're getting it through dialogue, but you're not getting it explained to you. You're mm -hmm. getting it shown to you. So 
I really tried to reach outside of books to be able to figure out how to make the story move fast now. And yes, the t- actually the scholarly tome, tomb, not tome, it was tomb, like where dead things go. <laughs> this was from my editor uh, and I have her six page letter to prove it. <laughs> you also quote Stephen Sondheim who said, if this is correct, who said to Lin-Manuel Miranda, rhythm demands variety. You have to change up the pace. That's an interesting interesting advice to a writer as to how you vary and move the reader along. And then I said, I read that you then began to think of the book as a concerto, as Kate made reference to. We've talked to a lot of writers. They talk about their methods of writing, but I've never heard it voiced that way, that you want to equate it to a piece of music and how you have to vary rhythms, how you have to vary melody, if there is melody in the music, how you have to vary pacing of a concerto, a symphony, whatever. How do you bring that to writing? I don't recall if those words that you quoted were actual or my paraphrase, but I listened to this amazing radio interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And he's talking about all the hows. And, and I'm looking at him and I'm looking at his speeches. God, I had so many speeches in this book. And I was really excited by them. But my editor was like, these guys just feel like they're talking forever and forever. And I was like, all right, who makes speeches sexy? And I thought, well, Lin-Manuel Miranda, he does. I mean, they're, they're, it's like a sparring, right? They're, they're rapping against each other. They're putting each other down. And I thought, that's really what it's about. And so how do I bring that flavor? And that's what sort of introduced me to that interview. But Stephen Sondheim, if I remember correctly, listened to an early rendition of Hamilton and was like, you're a danger of your losing your audience because everything is, you know, it's the same rhythm and it can just, it's explosive and it can be really exciting, but it has to have color value. And Actually, another dear family friend had a quotation that I put up on my wall as well, which came from a flamenco teacher, which had to do with, you don't have to fill in all the rests. And that was also mind-blowing for me, so that the rests are as important as the music that you're singing. So that has to do with what you're leaving out, but the pauses that you're taking in the story. So if you have everything up here, and that was a temptation because the craft's story is so exciting, so dynamic, there's so much happening at every particular moment that it all seems to be forte, 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 fortissimo. But that forte loses value if we don't occasionally have the rests or if we don't have the pianos in there. You have the whisper, you have a softness, then the bigs become even bigger and you have that orchestral score, which is what I was going for. Did the past give you those rests that you needed as you broke down their story? Yes. So sometimes it was literal, like, all right, they've made it first past this first harrowing escape uh, from the station where they meet three different people, you know, who could possibly apprehend them. And then they are going to be riding to Savannah. So Ellen is sitting back for a minute. So I'm thinking, all right, while she's sitting, maybe we can sit with her. Maybe we can sort of go into her memory. And so there, there is a, a, a change of pace there. And there are other moments where they're at enormous risk and they're on the cusp of doing something amazing. But in order to understand how they arrived at the decisions and actions that got them through, we have to see where they came from, where they gained that knowledge that brings them to this moment. So that's another point where I might pause. To wrap this up, Elian Wu, would you like to have a beer with these two people? 
I would like to have anything with these two people. I mean, they just, yeah, they, they are, they have such a hold on me. And when you read about the effects that they have on other people, they're incredible. And Ellen Craft is like working room. She might not be on the stage as much, but she's, and she's a great feisty dinner companion and talker. I mean, that's sometimes where she has her biggest zings that I found. It would be lovely to have a glass of beer, a glass of wine, anything in their company. Fantastic. Master slave, husband, wife, soon to be or now in paperback, available in better bookstores everywhere, as they say in the advertisements. Ilyan Wu, we're going to ask you to stand by for some uh, rapid fire questions. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid-fire questions for Ilion Wu, your favorite place to do research. In an archive. The dustier, the harder to find, the better. If they don't make me wear gloves and I can actually put my fingers on the, the manuscripts, even better. There's nothing better than a living, breathing archive. Mm. Is there a lesser-known book about slavery that you would tell everyone to read? Oh, there's so many books that I would recommend. I mean... Do I have to choose one? <laughs> no, you can throw five. Throw us five. I mean, related to the craft story, I do love this gigantic biography of William Wells Brown. It's by Ezra Greenspan, and it's called um, William Wells Brown, An African-American Life. So that's a really wonderful one. If you want to get inside a mother-daughter relationship and the complications and beauty of doing archival research... I would recommend Taya Miles's All That She Carried, which is a book that I used to try to understand Ellen Craft's relationship with her mother. 
I also love Never Caught by Erica Armstrong Dunbar, which is about George Washington's uh, runaway slave. Manisha Sinha's The Slave's Cause is another great big fat telephone book of a, um, of a tome about abolitionists. Ooh, I get one more. All right. Soul by Soul by Walter Johnson. It's about a specific site of slave trade, but it is heartrending and beautifully written and profound. So you couldn't narrow it down to less than five. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to, try to <laughs> I'm gonna ask you to try to narrow it down to one. Most influential book in your life. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's impossible. Single most influential. No, there's there's not a single one, but I, I could say that I had stories told to me and read to me from a very young age. So maybe the most influential storytelling would be my father's telling me um tales before I went to sleep. Mm-hmm. Wow. What do you think the crafts would think of your book? Well, I do have feedback from descendants, which has been really amazing to receive. I obviously can't go into their minds and say, I mean, that would not be true to the story of the book itself, because I can only, that's a rule that I had in the book. I can only say what they feel if I can footnote it. And I cannot footnote this. So I can't say what they would have felt. I guess I, but I can say what I wish they might feel reading it. I wish they might feel seen that I've done my best to sing their story true and to to show them in the world in which they lived. I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you so much, Ilion Wu. This was fantastic. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great book. It's a terrific book. Couple of things I would add, Kate. First of all, I was delighted, delighted to find out that her brother, Wanbaugh, had been one of my producers when I was at ABC at World News, anchoring World News. He was a terrific producer. So immediately I knew it's got great family and <laughs> with a fine producer and a good writer. Secondly, I am surprised that their story is not better known, that more people didn't hold up their hands when I asked you if you'd ever heard of Ellen or William Craft, because they were symbols at the time for escaping from slavery. And yet their story seems to have gotten lost. And I think the fact that she has written this wonderful book, about to come out in paperback, as we said, but available in hardback, I hope will, again, bring them to the nation's attention. Yeah, I'm it doesn't sound to me like she ever came up with a terrifically satisfactory answer as to why that story isn't better known. And these were people that very much embraced what they had done as symbolic. I keep coming back to the fact in their story that they were willing to separate and that they were not going to be taken and they didn't want people to purchase their freedom for them. And in some ways, I think it's interesting. It felt like from the story that in some ways they didn't start life as a married couple until they got to England. It was like they knew they had to finish their destinies in that way in this country. And their impetus for escape was the fact that they had seen family members sold on the block and separated from them. Ellen's father was her master. His wife hated the fact that she looked like her husband. She tolerated her husband's infidelities, but she would not tolerate the fact that the baby, Ellen, looked like him. And so Ellen was given away to her half-sister. But because family was important to them, because they'd seen family separated, they were very interested all the time 
in reconnecting with their mothers. And so after things had calmed down a little, they went back to Macon, Georgia to reunite with their moms, which was which was even more risky, I thought, even though it was post-Civil War. It's one thing, again, that stays with me from this book. You know, of course, we've read about the, the terrors, the evils of slavery. They are obvious, they are painful, and they are bloody. I had never considered that economically difficult times for your master's home would also be terrifying. Yeah. That the second you see your master and his wife start to hit upon hard times, you know things are going to start to be sold and you are a thing and your family is are things and that you live with that terror constantly too. I mean, I just this yeah. book brought that home to me as well. Well, as we quoted, they got hooked up with uh, William Wells Brown, who was actually a more famous abolitionist at the time, uh, also black. But he said at the time, and I think it's very apt, and you're just talking about it, that slavery, as we quoted in the interview, as slavery can never be represented. You cannot make a reader fully understand or a viewer of a movie or whatever. You can't make them fully understand what it was like. Again, though, we recommend the book. Both Kate and I found it really interesting. Master, slave, husband, wife. We have a bookstore this week. It is Island Books in Middletown, Rhode Island. The owner is Lori Sutherland. It's a small state, but a mighty bookstore. Lori Sutherland of Island Books in Middletown, Rhode Island. So before I ask you why you were crazy enough or smart enough to own and operate a bookstore, I want to ask you about staff picks because that is a huge centerpiece of your website. Why do you think staff picks are so important and what role do they play in your store with your staff? They play a huge role in our store. Um, We have a, a staff pick section. And that is where our customers go first. As soon as they walk in the door, they run over to that staff picks to see what we've changed and what we have up there and what's new. And they really depend on us to offer suggestions and give feedback on all the various books. But that staff pick section is a critical part of our store. I think it's so important also for keeping up the morale of your booksellers, uh, the people who are on the floor. They are a part of what you do. And I know I'm going to violate Kate's privacy here, but she worked (laughs) as a bookseller for a while in a bookstore. Yes, I think I knew that. Yes. And Mm -hmm. she would call me when her recommendations (laughs) got bought by people. She felt like it was a personal victory. But that's really important. People who work in bookstores, far more important, I think, than people normally who are in retail. Agree? Absolutely. I mean, not only do you need to read, but you need to be able to explain the book in a way that people will get people excited about it. And that's a big part of the selling process in a bookstore. And as you can see behind me, (laughs) I have a whole bunch of books. Those are all what we call ARCs, which are advanced reader copies. We get them all the time. We go through them. We read them. Not all of them, um, but we do pick out ones, especially if they're by a favorite author. So that we, like I've already read two books that are coming out in the spring. One I'm super excited about. You know, those are important too, because then we can tell people, oh, by the way, um, when they buy a book, guess what? He's like, I just had someone buy an Eric Larson book, um, The Splendid and the Vile. He has a new book coming out in the spring. And it's about the five days before the Civil War started. So people are thinking about that and they're excited and they'll, you know, hopefully come back and remember that when that book comes out in April. I know it's not out yet, but what book 
in ARC did you read that you're super excited about for the spring? The Wolf at the Table. It's a debut novel by a man named Adam Rapp, and he is a playwright, and this is his first novel. And I will tell you, it is not for the faint of heart. It is a family saga drama that starts in the 50s and goes through the present day, but it has got some real intense, and this is the kind of book that I just love, like real intense things that happen in this family. But great writing style, great, great book. It is a rush, isn't it? Like, yes. I, I, I still to this day, I've been an addicted reader, as you can tell, for a long time. And yet still to this day, when I finish a book, I get a rush knowing I get to pick out what's next. Yeah. <laughs> and as a bookseller, I used to get a rush. I mean, I don't know what it is about that. But when you can have a conversation with somebody about books, and you give them a big pile, and they say, I'm only going to buy two. And so you sit them down and you have them look at the books. I am telling you, you watch for that customer to go to the cash register, you do. And then you go to the person behind the cash desk and you say, what did they buy? Did they and buy? if it's yours, you, you go, yep. yes. yes. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't yeah. know why. Because I don't think people that sell pants get that same rush. No. You know, they bought <laughs> the button fly boot cut. <laughs> yes. Like, I don't think people get that same no. sort of addictive rush from that. Well, I just think it's a piece of your intellect, right? So mm. you want to be validated that you have the right intellect that's matching theirs. Your logo is, is a woman in a beach chair mm -hmm. with a hat on and joy. So is there a difference between what you sell in the winter and what you sell in the summer? Yes. And is your buying mm -hmm. strategy different? So in the summer, we get a ton of tourists, as I'm sure you can imagine. And so we keep a lot of books that I don't know how to put this without it sounding really bad, but beach reads. Yeah, like fun, yeah, if you were going to use fun as an adjective. Books, you right. know, things like that. We keep a lot of those in the store in the summer because that's what those the tourists, you know, that's what they want to read. The other thing that they want to read about is Newport and they want to read about the history and they want to know about the Gilded Age and the characters in that. So we always have a very large array of those type of books, both fiction and nonfiction that we can refer to. And so that's one strategy. Now, we do carry those books for most of the year, but we tend to really pump them up in the summertime so that those the tourists have access to those things because we know that's what they want. From January to about March-ish, you know, end of March, beginning of April, it's, it's pr pretty dead. You know, we are lucky that we have a very loyal clientele. We have people that order from out of state from us, like they go to wherever they go in the winter, but they still order books from us and we ship them to them. So we're very, very lucky for that. And I'm very grateful for those folks because they kind of keep us afloat during those three months when it is a little quieter in here. Lori Sutherland of Island Books. You'll find it in Middletown, Rhode Island on East Main Street on Aquidneck Island. And if you don't know Aquidneck Island, it is the island with Newport on the south. Portsmouth on the north and right in the middle, well-named Middletown. <laughs> Middletown, Rhode Island. Thank you for being with us. All the best. Yeah, Lori. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lori Sutherland, enthusiastic bookseller from Island Books on East Main Road in Wyatt Square, Middletown, Rhode Island. Check them out if you are there. And we'll let you know who's responsible for this podcast, and then we'll have a final word from Wamba Wu's sister, Ilion. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. 
Asal Esanapur is our producer, Laura Mayer, and Simone Swink, our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster, and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America, and Josh Cohan, Nania McLean, Vika Aronson, and Brenda Salinas Baker at ABC Audio. My last thought would be the importance of broadening our definition of what an American hero is and broadening our view of American history because our history holds multitudes. It carries stories like the crafts. It carries the story of the Declaration of Independence, which connects directly with it. It's big, it's vast, it's wide. And I want us to appreciate all of it in its fullness. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>